My name's Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Carney E. Free. Welcome. So good to see you. Welcome to everyone watching at CarneyEFree.com. Uh, I'll pray, and we'll jump into our message. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning, for the time to be together with this dear church family. Thank you for everyone watching online as well at CarneyEFree.com. Lord, we, um, we're blessed in so many ways. We have our challenges for sure, but we also have so many blessings that we want to just pause and give you thanks. You're a kind and gracious and loving God, and you've been good to us. We thank you for this church family, and we ask God that you teach us this morning from a little-known prophet by the name of Nahum. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our spirits be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I would invite you to turn to the prophet Nahum. It comes right after the prophet Micah. Have you ever heard a message on Nahum? Raise your hand. Okay, I haven't either until 9.15 when I gave one for the first time. Uh, okay, so we'll see how this goes. But uh, we're going to go from, from Micah to Nahum. If you don't know where that is, that's fine. Uh, use the table of contents. And uh, we're looking at the next major message from the next minor prophet. And in the very short oracle from Nahum though, this morning, we're going to see these two characteristics of God that we are not called to imitate. There are two characteristics of God that we are not called to imitate. If you've been around the Bible much at all, you've been around church much at all, and I know we have a diverse crowd here, but if you've been around church um, any amount of time, you know that the Bible calls us to imitate Christ all the time. Uh, Paul says, imitate Christ, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Uh, we're told to walk in love as dearly beloved children as we've been loved, so we imitate the God who is love. We're told to be holy as God is holy. We're told to pursue justice as God pursues justice. We're told to walk in mercy and in compassion and grace and truth and generosity. All of these are characteristics of God that God also wants to be found in you and me. But interestingly, there are a couple characteristics of God that it seems are like too much for ordinary humans like us to handle. There's a couple characteristics of God that we are not called to imitate. And at first glance, these characteristics, I will just admit, they frighten me a little bit. The title of the message though this morning is The Goodness of the Severity of God. The Good Severity of God. These two characteristics though, that we're going to talk about, that we're going to see in Nahum, they are severe. Let me give you the context for those as stated here by the prophet Nahum. It's about 640 BC, and Nahum is preaching against the great city of Nineveh. This is the same city that repented when Jonah came to it some 100 years before. Many in Nineveh repented, but apparently many of the grandkids have chosen not to follow their grandparents' new faith. And they've resumed to the brutality of their great-grandparents or their ancestors, and they are treating Israel as such. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and it was part of the 
people, along with the whole of Assyria that captured Israel and took God's people into exile some 80 years ago, they've been living as refugees in Assyria now for these past couple generations. And we know that God is going to bring judgment to his own house. Most of the prophets speak about God's judgment to his own house, to the people of Israel. But the prophets also speak, including this one, about God's righteous judgment of the nations. God promises that by his sovereign power and exhaustive knowledge, he will bring justice on oppressive nations as well. Okay, so judgment begins in God's house. We're always called to look in the mirror before we look out the window, right? Talk about that a lot. Look in the mirror much more than you look out the window what the world is doing. Focus on what we're doing in the church. But God and his justice, God and his righteousness will make things right for all nations as well. Think about what you've been reading related to Russia and its invasion of Ukraine or four or five years earlier, its invasion of another sovereign nation named Crimea. Crimea, excuse me. And you think about the, the stories that you've heard, if you've read any stories at all about what's happened there. It's horrific. Like the brutality of what Russia has brought down against people in another sovereign nation, against civilians, bringing rape and erasing human dignity and total disregard for, for another nation's sovereignty. You read some of these stories and you're left just saying, why, God? Like, how can this be? And when will you end it? That's what's happening with Assyria in 640 BC. There's plunder and there's forced prostitution. There's slavery and murder and witchcraft. And these are all descriptions of Assyria that the prophet Nahum laments in his three short chapters. Israel's been living under that hand of oppression and God sees their pain and he hears their cry and he's attentive to their prayer. And so also, if you're in pain today, if you're lamenting God, where are you? He hears your cry. He hears your prayer. It doesn't simply hit the ceiling tiles and fall back to your feet. Our cries go up to God and he hears and he chooses the time that he's going to act and this is now that time for Assyria, Nahum says. The next three chapters, all three chapters of Nahum are basically saying God is going to bring Assyria down. We pick it up here, Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. This is a prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision given to Nahum the Elkishite. Now, we don't know a lot about Elkishites, the city of Elkosh, other than they're the founder of the Elks Club. <laughs> ha ha, I did that, I'm sorry. <laughs> we don't know a lot about Elkosh. It was a small city, most likely in southern Judah, that likely was destroyed when Babylon came in and uh, defeated the Assyrians and defeated as well uh, the nation of Judah to, to the to the, to the south. 
the southern nation of Israel. So we don't know a lot about the Elkishites, but because that city is no more, but that's where Nahum is from. And here's the prophecy, here's the vision, though, that he receives. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and events his wrath upon his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and in the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke, I will break the yoke of Assyria from your neck, and I will tear your shackles away. Woo! I would call that a melt-your-face type passage. Nahum is not the kind of passage that we tend to do small group Bible studies on, is it? It's not like a happy, warm, fuzzy book. But friends, there are some nuggets here that are really critical for us to understand about the character of God. Did you see these two characteristics that I refer to that are unique to God's character and are not to be found in us? Did you see them? Look again at verse 2. The Lord is a, what does it say? A jealous God, and then it goes on, he is an avenging God. Those are the two characteristics. So if you're underlining your Bible right now, you're highlighting, I encourage you to highlight these words. The Lord is a jealous God, and then he's an avenging God. It goes on to say this about the vengeance of God four different times in this one verse. It says, avenging God, the Lord takes vengeance, the Lord takes vengeance on his foes, and he vents his wrath against his enemies. Now, I know this is a tone that shocks most 21st century Bible readers, but what I'd like to say today, what I'd like to suggest out of this passage and out of the book of Nahum is this simple idea that I believe is vital for us to understand as it relates to the character of God, and it's this. God's jealousy for your worship and his vengeance on evil is actually good news. God's jealousy for our worship and his vengeance on evil, we may not think of it 
this way, but it's actually good news. And many of us are tempted to think of vengeance and jealousy as characteristics of God that are found in the Old Testament portrait of God, but maybe not in the New Testament portrait of God. Sometimes we're tempted to believe that this is beneath the character of Jesus and the portrait that we hold about Jesus. But let us not forget that it was Jesus who called religious hypocrites whitewashed tombs. Hello. Speaking of fighting language, he calls them whitewashed tombs. And it was Jesus who went into the temple and he saw the injustice of greedy money changers exacting unjust interest from people on their temple taxes. And what did he do? He overturned those tables and the money went flying all over the place. Indeed, my friends, if you want to know what God is like, you look no further than Jesus. To look at Jesus gives you a portrait of what God is like. Jealousy is tied to the covenant promise of God. God makes this covenant promise with us and we have a side of the covenant and he's jealous that we would maintain our side of the covenant in this promise though that he's made to us. It's really interesting. There actually is, as an aside, there is one place where jealousy is allowed in the human heart. Do you know what it is? It's jealousy for one's spouse, sexual fidelity from one's spouse. In the Old Testament, there is permission that a man would be jealous for his wife's sexual fidelity. And a wife would be jealous for her husband's sexual fidelity. Which gives us a little bit of a clue about the covenant that God brings us into and why he's jealous for us. We use the same language at a wedding that you're making a covenant with someone through thick and thin, through sickness and health, I am yours for life, I will never go to another. It's covenant promise language. And so also when God comes to us, he does a define the relationship type thing with us in which he says he is the creator and he is the covenant maker. And in this covenant, he says, I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation. I will make you shine for others to see. And he says that to Israel. And he also says that to all those who are in Christ Jesus today that we are blessed to be a blessing to others. We are made to be the hope of Christ and God will bless us in that way. That's his side of the covenant to us. Our side of the covenant is this. Obey the 10 commandments, obey his commandments and worship him fully. It's these two different sides of the covenant and God has a pure jealousy that we would worship him appropriately. Now, who would agree with me that jealousy is not a good emotion in you? Anyone else? Okay, just a few of you. The rest of you are lying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, jealousy is a terrible emotion in humans, right? When I see jealousy in my heart, it is filthy. It's why the 10th commandment says, you shall not covet. Because covetousness is this filthy sense that I don't have enough. That God has not provided enough for me. And so I'm going to be ungrateful for what I have and constantly longing for what I do not have. 
This triggers discontent, envy, which are all thieves of joy. And God doesn't want that for us. We would all agree that jealousy is an ugly, even filthy thing well, when found in us. I have a friend who lives in another city, and he shared with me recently that this friend has done well for himself, and he drives a Tesla Model S. It's a pretty nice car. And uh, he shared that a protester recently came up to his Tesla Model S after he got out of the car and decided to relieve herself on his car. Perhaps she was jealous of his gas mileage. But more likely, what was going on there? She's jealous of his wealth. She's protesting and she's jealous of his wealth. Okay, that's an extreme example, but it makes the point jealousy in humans is a filthy thing. It's true for us on much smaller levels as well. And so again, well, what God does is he defines the relationship for for us as he says, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna make you a light of the world and you in response are to worship and obey my commandments. Here's the second of God's top 10 commandments. It goes like this. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, any kind of false gods that you can imagine, those made with wood or with metal or money or possessions or sexuality or some man or woman's approval or some person that you put on a pedestal. You shall not bow down to them in your heart. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, maybe you've asked before why God is jealous for our worship and our obedience. I'll just admit, well, when I went to seminary um, 15 years ago or so, or whatever it was, one of the things that troubled me sometimes in the classes, one of the questions that I regularly asked is, why is God jealous for my worship? Why does he tell me to glorify him so much? Like, is there a piece of God that's kind of like insecure? I, I wondered that. Maybe you've wondered it before. You probably wouldn't say it out loud. But I wondered that. And so it was really helpful for me to process through this while when I was in seminary. Let me give you an analogy and then another reason why God invites us to worship him alone and why his jealousy for our worship is actually a good thing for us. Like, to not worship God would be similar to a child who had a faithful mother his whole life. And he looks up to that mother and he calls that mother mom, but, but one day he decides, even though mom has always been faithful, he decides that he's going to start to call another woman mom. For no apparent reason, he just decides, I'm going to start to call another woman my mom. What would you call that? I would call that absurd. That's just absurd, right? To ascribe the title of mom to someone who was not your mom when your mom had been faithful. That would be absurd. So also it is to call anything else God that is not God. It's absurd to give our heart to something else that is not God. When we worship God, when we obey God, we're simply ascribing worth to him for who he is. 
We're saying you are creator, you are redeemer, you are covenant maker and promise keeper. You are all of that and I simply call you what you are. It's a statement of who he is. Here's the second reason. God invites us to worship him exclusively because it's the very best thing for us. Okay, God wants what is best for us and if we do not worship him, friends, what will happen? We'll worship something else, I just heard someone say. We will worship something else. We will give our heart to someone or something else. And whether you're a follower of Christ today or an atheist or an agnostic or whatever you happen to believe in this room today, the simple fact is you will give your heart to something. You'll give your heart to something or someone and that which you give your heart to is worship. And it will not go well for you if you give your heart to something that is less than God. So God wants it to go well for us. He wants it to go well for his children. So he invites us into loving relationship with him in which we would worship him and obey him alone. Does that make sense? I love the way St. Augustine put it way back in the fourth century. He said, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. So maybe you know that you've worshiped something else in your days. I have. My heart was always restless when I did so. I never had any rest until I learned to find my rest in the one who alone is God, until I learned to find my freedom and my peace and my contentment through the ups and downs and the challenges of life in the one who promises to never leave me or forsake me. Now, the other characteristic that is uniquely God's is vengeance. And once again, our key passage, verse 2, says, The Lord your God is an avenging God. And vengeance simply affirms that God is going to exact justice. Like, he will not wink at the sex slave trade that happens on I-80. He will bring vengeance to that one day. He does not wink at the atrocities that are happening in Ukraine. He will bring vengeance to that one day. He does not wink at the sinfulness of my heart. Either I must get that forgiven by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, or I will receive justice for that one day. Now part of this, I must admit, really frightens me because God is holy and I am not. So what this should do for us is kind of fall us to our knees and percolate this prayer in us that we would say, God, please help me to have a proper fear, a proper reverence for you. I want my fear of God to be great. And if my fear of God is great, then my fear of men and women and what they might say about me will be small. Have you noticed that? That when you fear God alone, you don't care a whole lot about what other people think of you. But when you're not fearing God, you tend to really fear what other people think of you. This is just really good news for us, that at the end of the day, we simply would not want to worship a God who winks at injustice, would we? I mean, I wouldn't want to worship a God who looks at injustice the way I sometimes look at injustice and then turn away. I want a God who is different than me. Anyone else? You want a God who is much bigger than you. You want a God who is holy in a way that you are not. You want a God who is just in a way that you are not. We want a God who does not wink at 
injustice, but a God who takes it seriously and promises that one day he will make all things right. And that we would stand in awe before him alone. What we want is a God whose heart is tender, but whose back is strong. Here's what Moses heard of the character of God when he received the Ten Commandments. Speaks of the tenderness of God and also the strength of God at the same time. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining his love to a thousand generations, yet he will not leave the guilty unpunished. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Nahum summarizes that in short, shorthand form even more. Nahum 1.3 says, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. You say that with me, slow to anger, great in power. Let's say it together. Slow to anger, great in power. Slow to anger, great in power. This is the character of our God. He's slow to anger, but he is great in power, and one day he will bring about justice. Listen to his power here in this passage. Verse 3. His way is in the whirlwind and in the storm. Verse 4. He rebukes the sea and he dries it up. Verse 5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt away in his presence. Verse 8, with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh, and he did so. Verse 10, they will be consumed like dry stubble. He's slow to anger and he's great in power. You got to understand that God was slow to anger with Assyria as well. He gave them 120 years. Indeed, from this moment, in this prophecy, from Nahum, it was 50 more years before the Babylonian Empire came in and made Assyria like stubble. He was slow to anger well with Assyria as well. Do you ever look at the evil in the world and just kind of say, God, would you please hurry up? Already, would you make it right, please? It is in that moment, my friends, that you have to remind yourself that God is different than you. He's slow to anger. He was slow to anger with Assyria. You have to remind yourself that he will bring justice, but he is waiting because he wants the maximum number of people to come to him. 2 Peter 3 says this, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. He is not slow in keeping his promises, as some of us would think about slowness, but he is patient. And why is he so patient? What does it say? Because he wants all people to come to repentance. Everyone you've ever met, he wants them. He wants them all to to come to repentance. And this also is part of the good news of God, that he is slow to exact divine judgment. One day he will, and so we are wise to take stock of where we are today. Like, there is no better day than today to take stock of, am I giving my heart to someone else? Am I putting another person or something else or zeal for money 
or zeal for sex, whatever it might be, on the pedestal as opposed to putting God on the pedestal. And if I am, today is a good day to repent of that and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Because he's great in power. Yeah, he's slow to anger, but he's also great in power. And he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So the time to respond to God's gracious patience with repentance is now. Maybe you've met someone who is slow to anger and great in power. They're pretty impressive people, aren't they? Maybe they're great in power because they're so slow to anger. Which is such a beautiful thing when you see it. Great in power because they're so slow to anger. And this is God multiplied many times over. He waits. And he invites. And he calls. And he loves. And one day, he exacts justice. I know the word vengeance just kind of seems ugly, doesn't it? But just kind of jam with me for a moment around this word vengeance. Like, why is it that men particularly, I think men are mysteriously kind of attracted to vengeance. Why is it that men particularly uh, love Clint Eastwood movies? Like, how many movies can he be in and make that all have the same theme? And what's the theme? Vengeance. Vengeance. (laughs) I'm going to bring it. There's something in us that is strangely attracted to this. Right, guys? Clint Eastwood's target audience is not the ladies in the room. Okay, there's something in us that's strangely attracted. I thought about this a lot last week. Why did I love so much as a kid Popeye the Sailor Man? He was my favorite cartoon. I think I liked him so much because when someone was picking on olive oil, he got to a point where he just can't stand it anymore. And he pulls out the spinach, and after eating spinach, he takes out a can of, I'm going to whoop your tail. And he does. He exacts vengeance in an appropriate way. And there's something kind of attractive about that. There's something in us that wants to believe that justice and even vengeance will be executed appropriately. And friends, what I want to tell you is that it will. It will. But not by us. Because we can't handle it. Vengeance will occur. It'll be exacted appropriately. But not by us. As Paul says over in Romans chapter 12, do not take revenge, my dear brothers and sisters, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, the problem with human vengeance is like, where does it end? You hear about families that have feuded with each other for generations, where does it end? You hear about gang violence back and forth and back and forth. The problem with human vengeance is it it just never ends. The other problem with human vengeance is we never see the whole picture accurately, do we? 
And our motives are at best mixed. On the best possible day, on the best possible circumstances, our best motives are at best mixed, to quote C.S. Lewis. And so we'll never really get vengeance just right. We might have anger at times, and as we have anger, it's really critical that you keep in mind Ephesians chapter four, in your anger, do not sin. God might call on you to act upon justice, to fight for justice. You gotta be really, really careful there that you're fighting for justice and you're not seeking to take revenge. God might even call on you someday to defend someone who is vulnerable. We have teams of people here who believe in that strongly. I believe in that. To defend someone vulnerable, what would be a good thing, but never out of anger. Never out of a desire for revenge. That's to completely miss the mark and take the purview of God, which simply is not ours. It is God alone who is able to hold jealousy and vengeance together in a pure and clean way. And my friends, Nahum says that when he does, it's really good news. Verse seven, the Lord is good, dear Israel. You can trust in God to do what he says he will do. Yes, he will bring his vengeance on Assyria. Yes, he is jealous for proper worship. The Lord is good. He is a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And friends, he still is for us. He is our refuge in time of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. He is good to those who trust in him. We can count on the Lord our God. So here's what I want to do to close here. There's a couple application questions on your outline or if you're using the Bible app that we supply to you. And I want to just encourage you as I come to prayer in a moment here to think through these two application questions. The first one is this. You, know, you might think, like, Nahum, what, where's the application? I've, I've struggled with it as well, but here it is. Here's the question. Where do I need to trust in the vengeance of God and therefore release my anger to God? Is there some place in your life that you're holding on to anger that is no longer yours to hold on to? You need to trust that into the good and capable hands of God. That's the first question. God wants to free us from the entanglements of anger. What do I need to release to him? The second question is, if God is jealous for my holistic worship, where do I need to give myself to him more completely? What area of life am I holding on to that I need to give more wholly to him? Like if Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is there any part of my life that I am holding on to that I need to surrender to my God. Worship is, in essence, giving more of myself to more of God. And it's even a daily practice that we would say, I need to give myself to you again today, God, because there's this temptation to take it back on each and every day. 
When I first came to Christ, I, I realized how much Jesus gave up for me on the cross. And it kind of just made sense, and I kind of just naturally responded. If he gave up all of that for me, the most natural and appropriate response would be, I'm going to give up all for him. If he sacrificed 100% for me, then will I sacrifice 100% for him? Will I give up all of myself? Will I offer myself wholly to him? That's a decision I made 25 years ago, but I got to tell you, I have to make that decision every day. Because there's a temptation in me each and every day to take some of it back. So here's a question to process today and perhaps this week. What are you holding on to? That you need to give up more fully to the one who invites our holistic worship. He's worth it. He's given his all for us. It would be ordinary, natural, expected for us to give our all to him. Let's pray. Father, I, I just want to take a moment to thank you and praise you that you're not like me. I want to give you honor and glory. We together as a church family want to give you honor and glory that you are a just and holy God. That you will accomplish all that you have promised. And you are a God who will ultimately do right. And we praise you, God, that you are not a God who would wink at injustice in this world. We praise you, Lord, that you are a God who knows what is best for us and therefore instructs us not to be duplicitous with our hearts. It's really easy for us today to have two faces. It's easy to be the two-faced man or woman who acts this way in this context in a completely different way in another. But we know, Lord, that what you want is holistic worship from us. So I just want to pray for my friends here in this room and those online right now. Perhaps as you process those questions, you're noticing an area of your life that you're holding on to. And you realize that's not really yours to hold on to anymore. It's yours to give it to God. It's yours to worship God with that area. That you don't want to be two-faced in your life. You want to be totally committed to the one who gave us all for you. Would you just tell him that right now in the silence of your heart? Perhaps there's others in this room right now who are really struggling with anger and even have feelings of wanting to take revenge in some small way, wanting to get back at someone in some small way, find a way to get even. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you please whisper to us right now? Would you help us to release that into your loving hands? We know that most everything in life can be done better without anger (laughs) than can be done with anger. And so, Father, we give those thoughts of vengeance to you. 
We want to have freedom from them. Maybe there's someone that we need to forgive. We want to have freedom there. So in the silence right now, is there anything that you want to release to God right now relative to anger or vengeance? You can trust him with this. You can trust him with this. Father, thank you for receiving our worship. Thank you that you have us as the mixed bag that we are. That you are kind and you are just and you forgive us from first to last. We give you glory today. In Christ's name.